Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Going to jump straight into an interview, 1-800-RESPECT is a national health line for people and friends or family of people who are experiencing sexual assault and domestic and family violence. Recently, the helpline has undergone some changes under the private-for-profit Medicare provider Medibank Health Solutions. In reaction to the restructuring of 1-800-RESPECT and after unsuccessful negotiations with MHS, Sydney-based not-for-profit Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia has stated that it can no longer ethically participate in the helpline and has decided last week to pull out as a counselling provider, which is a role that it's held for seven years and was the sole provider. I have RDVSA Executive Officer Karen Willis on the line. Karen Willis, thank you for coming on the show. Good morning. Good morning. So we'll go straight into your organisation's concerns. A lot of them seem to hinge on the safety of your clients and their privacy. Under the new subcontract, Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia would have been required to hand client files over to MHS. Why was this a deal breaker? Uh, that's, that's six years' worth of counselling notes. Um, women, Mostly women ring our service and they trust us with the most awful and personal stories of their life. And we could not betray that trust by handing that information over to a large private health insurance company that's in fact up for sale. That would just be a complete and utter breach of the trust that they placed in us. Um, would be unethical in terms of our um, professional processes and practices and um, just completely not the right thing to do. Absolutely. And um, there are also a couple of other really concerning ways in which data are handled by MHS. They've had data breaches in the past. Defence personnel files were leaked to China in 2015, for example, and that was quite a, a famous case of... Um, um, data and lack of security around data. Um, also, um, I've read that the future file notes um, would be recorded on the MHS system, and MHS also voice records all interactions, which could... What could happen to those notes and recordings? Uh, what, um, but there's a number of concerns, the main one being that they can be subpoenaed by defence lawyers um, in court matters. And while, as a non-government organisation, we certainly do receive subpoenas, we always claim communications privilege and we've had a 100% success rate there. Medibank has said that they wouldn't go down that track. They would just hand over not only the file notes but also the voice recordings. And I'm just asking listeners to think about someone who experiences sexual assault. They ring a counselling service not long after that when the levels of trauma and distress are kicking in really badly. Two years down the track, um, after making a complaint to police, they end up in court. They've done all the work on themselves to recover. And the very first thing at the committal hearing that the defence lawyer does is play back that voice recording at a time where, you know, all of that distress and so on was, was affecting them. What will happen to the complainant is all the memories will come flooding straight back. They will feel 
not only incredibly exposed, but right back in that really awful trauma situation that they were in two to three years prior. I, I think it's cruel in in the extreme. It's it's a public torture instrument, as far as I'm concerned. Not to, and I'm not saying that lightly. I I actually think it's very cruel, and to be party to that is just unacceptable. So. We, um, again, unless there's going to be communications privilege demanded on all the client file notes, handing them over to someone who would not participate in that process, just not the go. No, that's that's really concerning. Um, also, there are other issues surrounding the way in which um, uh, Medibank Health Solutions is bringing in their own counselling model and training would not be subject to review by your organisation. Is, is that right? Yeah, we were actually asked to sign a contract that said we would abide by their counselling model and we asked for a copy of it and they said, oh, they, they said two things. Firstly, um, after we sign the contract, they give it to us and then secondly, oh, the providers will develop that after the contracts are signed. The counselling model that we use, um, we first developed that in 2004. It took two years of national and international research, practitioner, consultation and discussion um, and preparation. Then we employed the counsellors who had the quality qualifications and skills to provide um, that counselling model. We provided the training and then we've revised it twice since. And every revision has taken another year and that's, again, looking at what the national and international evidence tells us is best practice when working with people who have experienced sexual assault and domestic violence trauma. Um, And then all of the new learnings, incorporating that into our training to counsellors and into our counselling models. You just don't develop a counselling model overnight. It's something that takes, if you're going to, if you want to do an evidence-based best practice counselling model, that is, um, you you take the time to do it properly and with care and based on what the world tells us is the best work to do in this space. And we were just really concerned that what we were going to get was something that just didn't even come close to the um, quality that we're confident that we currently offer. Uh, and then, of course, not being able to look at it, saying, I'll just sign here, trust us. Well, no, it doesn't quite work that way. Uh, certainly. And also there's um, another concern that your organisation, the Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia, has about the increase in the number of providers, counselling providers associated with 1-800-RESPECT. Uh, why is that an issue? The other providers are all great women's services and we've worked with them for years and, you know, they refer to us, we refer to them and... Um, they have you know, quite considerable levels of expertise in the areas that they're working in. So it's not about those other providers, but it's about the model. Um, in 2016, August 2016, uh, Medibank introduced a two-service um, model where they uh, were the first responder to any call. And as someone put it to me recently, you have to audition first to see if you can get through to speak to a trauma counsellor. So people had to go through that triage model and Medibank would decide whether they would refer them to us. That two-service model created havoc in communication, in good quality service provision to clients, in um, information exchange, just in, in the therapeutic process. Clients would, would come to us being quite distressed, not because the Medibank counsellors were bad, but just because... They didn't have um, the qualifications and skills and experience and training that were required to do this work. Our concern is that if if we if it was such a nightmare with two providers, how is it going to work when you've got five in there? How are you ever going to provide any sort of consistent counselling 
and responds to people. Medibank told us that um, when a call comes into their triage service, it will be the next counsellor available. So, um, you know, you could ring the triage service one day and you'd end up with a counsellor in Queensland and then the next, you know, a week later a counsellor in South Australia and a week later a counsellor in Victoria. There would be no consistency in service provision. It would be nearly impossible. So what you're going to end up with is an information and referral service, which is not what 1800 Respect was ever set up to be. It was always set up to be a trauma counselling service where people experienced a consistency of service delivery over a period of time, where each call built on the skills and strengths of the previous call to assist that person in their stages towards recovery. Absolutely. It sounds like it was a um, a very specialist service where um, someone would come to receive ongoing counselling, but there's, there's a shift away from that towards uh, what um, Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia characterises as a as an information board or a sort of a referral service, which it didn't used to be. That's exactly right. And, and I, I think, firstly, if someone experiences sexual assault, family or domestic violence, they have an absolute right to expect and we have a total obligation to provide the best quality counselling service that we can. And one a one-off session for some people is all that's needed, but overwhelmingly people require more than just one counselling session to get to the space that they want to get to and to achieve the goals that they're wanting to achieve. And so we have an obligation to provide that. I think there's just no question that that's what the service should be and how it should work. Absolutely. The other big problem, of course, is that the demand on 1800RESPECT was massive. But it's not just 1800RESPECT that experienced that. Sexual assault and domestic violence services across the country are experiencing incredible demand. And that's great. You know, women are, mostly women are making decisions that they're not going to put up with the violence that they've been experienced and they're going to seek assistance in their recovery. And that's terrific. But what that does mean is sexual assault and domestic violence services across the country are overwhelmed. The demand is often much higher than capacity to supply. So or services can have one, two, three, you know, eight-week waiting lists and 1-800-RESPECT would provide the support and assistance until the person got into there. If you turn it into an information referral service, the problem's going to be is where you're going to refer people because a lot of services just aren't immediately available. Mm. Now, just with the last minute that we have left for the interview, as part of the RDVSA statement, you observe a trend where the opening, open tendering of services has brought in providers where profit is the primary motive. What are the dangers of switching to a for-profit model and where else do you see this trend? I think the, um, as soon as you put profit, or anything, I don't, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, as soon as you put something above providing the best possible service that you possibly can, to the people who make use of your service, then what you're going to do is say that that quality response is a reduced obligation. And we don't think that's acceptable. Uh, one of the directors of uh, Medibank recently said in a newspaper in a interview that one of their strategic directions was to increase by 50% their profits from sexual assault and domestic violence over the next five years. Just, just the thought the idea that um, organisations, private organisations, often male-dominated private organisations, would think that making a profit from sexual assault and domestic violence is a good idea just um, just defies description, really. Uh, but as soon as you put profit in front of, and, and I mean, we've seen over and over again um, problems with aged care services, childcare services, um, issues within tertiary education where as soon as you put profit 
in there in front of high quality service delivery, we start to run into all sorts of problems. So uh, the privatisation of services, which is, I think, what this is about, it's privatisation by stealth, um, and then re- resulting in, in quality purely being measured by numbers of calls that you pick up rather than what you do once you pick up that call. Again, it's not something that our organisation thought was what one had respect was about and what we wanted to be involved with, and certainly what those that experienced domestic violence and sexual assault um, you know, they, they should experience a much better service than Certainly. what's potentially being offered. Yeah, now with just a last few seconds, RDVSA will cease taking 1-800-RESPECT calls on the 28th of October, is what I've read. That's right. After that yep. date, what alternatives can people access if they're experiencing or fear they're at risk of experiencing sexual assault and domestic violence? one 800 respect will still exist. It just will be under a different model, operated mm. by different providers, with Medibank being the key up-the-front um, service provider. Certainly. It's just that we... Uh, so the, the service will continue. It's just that we're saying we don't agree with um, what's being offered and um, and how it's going to be offered, and in particular, the concept of us needing to hand over file notes. So we were just saying that we don't... From an ethical perspective in particular, we don't think we could be engaged with that. The other problem that, of course, we now have is that um, over the next two months, we're going to have to be... Ma- making over 70 highly skilled trauma specialists redundant. So that it hasn't been a decision that we took lightly. No. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Karen Willis is the Executive Officer for Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. If anything discussed in the previous interview has brought up questions or concerns for you, you can call Lifeline at 13 11 44. And to contact Sexual Assault Counselling Australia, call one 800 211 Zero two eight. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Up next, our new segment on social support access over the wall. Listeners, if you've been on Centrelink payment any time in the last five years, chances are you've received a letter from the government claiming that you owe them money. If you haven't received the letter yet, it's possibly only a matter of time. This is a public service announcement. Hundreds of thousands of Australians have received what looks like a debt recovery notice. It's important that you know how to respond when this first letter arrives. Over the Wall wants to offer you some simple tools to fight back and defend yourself against a grossly unfair and aggressive system. A system that penalises people already disadvantaged by poverty and significant health conditions. In segment one of Over the Wall, we'll be running through the history of the Centrelink robo-debt fiasco after the launch of the OCI automated system in mid-2016. Let's hear now an interview with Lindsay Jackson, coordinator of the Not My Debt campaign, interviewed by Duncan Graham. Lindsay starts by discussing how Centrelink's robo-debts began. 
Late last year, we started to see the story pop up through social media and people talking about issues with getting these debts from Centrelink, not really understanding or having information as to where they come from or why they've been issued. And the debts were going back years, so people were being asked to go back and get payslips from five or six years ago. And it was attracting a lot of comments on the Triple J hack, their Facebook page. Lots and lots of people saying that they'd also had these debts. The media was starting to report on it, but there didn't seem to be much cohesion around collecting really solid information about what was going on. Asha Wolf, who's a really influential person on Twitter, she started tweeting about this issue again and it really got my interest. And so I sent a tweet to her and I said, hey, I think there's an issue here and I just can't see which organisations or bodies are going to really be able to pull this information together quickly so that people can figure out what's going on. And so through that, I offered to build a campaign website and start to create a movement and a discussion about this together. Um, so that happened on December 30th and we started to collect stories about people that were affected by this. You talk about December 30, it seems like around Christmas last year or maybe just before Christmas is when a whole bunch of people started to receive these letters. Yeah, um, so what we found from the Senate inquiry was that people were just getting these contacts from debt collectors saying you've got this huge Centrelink debt and for so many people it had been years since they were on Centrelink and so all of a sudden they're, they're starting to be harassed and hounded just before Christmas when all of the support agencies are closing down, when even staffing levels at Centrelink are winding down and it just really added to the frustration and the harm for people really because it was the holidays and, and here they are lumped with thousands of dollars worth of debt that they can't explain. There was one case, an account that was shared with us through the week where five years ago a couple on an age pension got an inheritance payout. They reported that to Centrelink and have had no troubles with it and, and from their understanding everything that they reported was fine and that there were no issues. And now five years later the automation has triggered that there is an issue and that there's a debt to be raised. And that's not the first time that I've seen an account of something where someone has reported something and there's been no action on it for years and years and then the automation of the system has triggered a debt from it. So it's incredibly confusing because people think five years ago that they're doing the right thing and that's the common thread throughout this. People understand that at the time they've reported fairly and accurately and they've done all of the things that they've needed to do. They've provided the paperwork at the time and yet five, six, seven years later, they're, they're being hit with a debt. And then they're also being asked to resubmit paperwork that they also had believed that the system should have. Um, so it's really confusing and it's really onerous as well. The OCI Automatic Robo-Debt Scheme was originally flagged in the 2014 budget and passed in the 2015 budget and the projections over the forward estimates of money raised by the OCI automated system is billions of dollars. And listeners, that's money raised by taking from pensioners, the unemployed and the recently unemployed, people who aren't wealthy. The numbers are really troubling. 
There's an expansion that's underway. So the first stage of it was to get around about $300 million. That was the first projections that were coming through in the budget. And that was for people that were no longer on Centrelink. So that's been the first round that we've seen. And then the next phase of that is age pensioners to start doing that same sort of algorithm matching for age pensioners. And that's projected to reap in a billion dollars. So that's three times the amount of revenue these forward estimates were projecting were going to come in. And you roll that out to $4 billion of revenue, it's a huge amount of people that are being affected. And what we don't know is the actual revenue that has been raised. We don't know the clear numbers on the inaccuracies of the debts. The department hasn't released those figures. And it's so troubling that the department is continuing on with this, that the ministers see this as acceptable, that the Prime Minister sees this as acceptable. You know, how is it just to be issued with a debt that the onus isn't on the department to clearly explain and provide all of the information that an individual needs to comfortably know that they owe this money? And people are really concerned and now they're starting to be concerned for their parents and and how their parents are going to be able to push back against a system that's really quite stretched as well. So people are being told to phone Centrelink to provide information or upload documents into a system and, you know, some people have just had such difficulty going back five years to get pay slips from their employers. Taking points from not my debt suggestions of what should be done, the first point you make is that you should keep a diary of all interactions and collect receipt numbers. Yeah, and, you know, again, we've had accounts of people where they have asked for receipt numbers through Centrelink and they've been denied that. So that's been difficult. And also the app has been disabling the ability for people to be able to take screenshots. So then photos of the screen or any information that you can get. But definitely document everything down, document who you're talking to and any steps that you're taking second point you make on the website is to not ignore the letter. Yeah, and that was something that people were doing, especially in the early stages, again, because they hadn't received Centrelink for years and they hadn't had anything to do with it. So there was sort of this feeling that it was sort of an automated system letter and it didn't apply to people so they didn't have to worry about it. That was really common early on. They just believe this is going to be an error that will go away and yeah, you can't. It's something that you need to address um, and to start a process. And then once people are in that system, then they're being asked to confirm information about how much they earn during that period of time that is part of the, depending on the answers there, that's part of the process that is then triggering this debt. It'll say that there's been some sort of discrepancy or that the department needs further information as it's referring people to go to MyGov to log in there and, and people don't know what the outcome of that's going to be. And now with some of the, the changes that they've made, if there's a debt that's calculated, there's a screen that's asking people to accept that debt at the time. Um, and so I think one of the things to be really mindful of is that just because you've clicked on yes I accept this is a debt because you've, you haven't been sure on what to select 
you do have the right to appeal these debts. Between November 2016 and January 2017, the Ombudsman's Office received an 87% increase in complaints from the public about issues with Centrelink. Stay tuned in coming weeks for more information about Centrelink's robo-debts and how you can better cope with this. In the meantime, I suggest you search notmydebt.com.au. was our new segment Over the Wall, which aims to give listeners some of the information they need to fight for their basic rights to a social safety net. We just heard Peter speaking about the online compliance intervention automated robo-debts. Hi, this is Katie from Little Birdie and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We need your help to support public radio and your local music scene. You're listening to 3CR. This is Billy X. Jennings of the Black Panther Party. Power to the people. We're pretty excited to have on the line with us Charlie Cooper, who is an LGBTQI mental health advocate involved in driving Headspace's queer online forum Q Headspace. Uh, Charlie's also a youth instructor at Mental Health First Aid Australia. We have him on the phone now to talk all things LGBTQI and mental health. Charlie, welcome to Monday Breakfast. Hello, good morning. Thanks for having me, Will. Oh, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, so first of all, I think it'd be great to get into what Q Headspace is. What uh, What is it and what brought it about? Yeah, cool. Okay, so um, for those who don't know, um, I am an advocate with Headspace and Headspace is Australia's National Youth Mental Health Foundation. So basically, Headspace has 100 centres around Australia, drop-in centres where young people aged 12 to 25 um, can come in and access free professional support for their mental health. Um, but it also has an online component called eHeadspace, which connects young people from their homes anonymously with uh, mental health professionals. So they can um, yeah, log in from the comfort of their own bedroom and chat to mental health clinicians. Um, but one of the projects that I've been recently pushing is um, to connect young people who have lived experiences of mental health struggles, um, particularly in the space of LGBTIQ identities, um, with other young people facing isolation and facing those similar struggles. So um, we came up with this idea um, of Q Headspace that would basically, yeah, provide... Um, young people going through a tough time, whether it be around their sexuality identity or their gender identity or um, uncertainty in those areas, um, and to connect them with other young people that have had similar experiences and that have come through it with a positive perspective. Um, and so basically, um, we, at the moment, once a month, we get um, a group of LGBTIQ young people together um, and for a couple of hours, we log in and we respond to questions in an open group space with the support of mental health professionals. Um, and it's been an insanely positive experience. So um, it's just the beginning, but we're hoping that Q Headspace will grow into something um, much more profound. That's fantastic. And a lot of the value, it sounds, of Q Headspace is the chance for young LGBTQI or IQ folks to talk about mental health issues, drawing on the lived experience of other people who have gone yeah. through similar situations in their lives, um, both coming from an LGBTQI background, but also from one where 
um, they've had uh, uh, experience dealing with mental health issues. Um, what, where else can you see this sort of thing happening? Is it happening at all on the internet? Look, it, it does happen. Um, an incredible initiative, which I have been largely inspired by, is QLife, um, which you may or may not have heard of. So QLife is Australia's first and only national um, online uh, volunteer-led counselling service for LGBTIQ um, Australians. And basically that trains up and connects, um, yeah, uh, Australian, you know, your everyday people who have a clear identity with... Um, uh, with, I keep wanting to say young people, but it's not specifically for young people. So basically, um, it's an online volunteer-led counselling service where you can chat over the phone or through the web with with a peer supporter. Um, but the thing that we recognised was really important is that it is necessary that there's a youth-specific space because there is a set of um, challenges and um, specific issues that come with being a queer young person in Australia that... Um, Many of our allies and our, um, you know, LGBTIQ mentors who are, might be 20, 30 years older than us might not understand. So we think it's really important to have a youth-specific space. Um, and so, yeah, there are peer support spaces out there. Um, many small communities have LGBTI or rainbow support groups. But something that I certainly identified with is that, you know, growing up when I was uncertain and, and feeling quite... Uh, unsure about my sexual identity, um, I really wanted to find a space to speak about it, but I was not ready to enter a, um, a face-to-face support group where I knew I'd be surrounded by other people that were open and uh, comfortable with their identities. And I just know that if I could go back three or four years and provide myself with this option that is QHead space, I could blog in literally from my PJs with like a bottle of ice cream in bed at home and, and, and ask questions of these um, these mentors online, it would have been an insanely positive experience and would have undoubtedly reduced enormous amounts of anxiety. So I think it's a really important space and I'm really yeah dedicated to fighting to make sure it keeps growing. Absolutely. And something else that you've, um, you've um, been openly passionate about in the past is that you've asserted the importance of um, having LGBTIQ people as a visible presence in health mm. professions. What yeah. benefits do you think this would bring to people seeking, um, seeking support? Yeah, okay. So well, one of the biggest um, factors or biggest reasons that we have QHead space there is it provides a bit of a bridge between LGBTIQ young people and professional services. So at the end of the day, our goal is to provide some some support and validation, but also to encourage them to reach out for professional help, because that's often the most uh, helpful and most important thing. But, you know, we know that many LGBTIQ young people and adults have had negative experiences in the past with um, discrimination or unfair treatment in the, in the place of healthcare. Um, and I can talk to that as well. I mean, it's one thing to come out uh, about your gender identity or your sexuality to your family and your friends and the people you care about, but we actually end up doing that, you know, every day. And, you know, a simple GP appointment where you're unsure if your um, your health worker is going to be accepting and uh, understanding of your identity, it's, it's really scary. And so it is so important that we have openly inclusive um, and supportive health services and 
I think um, one of the cool things about Two Headspace is that we can connect young people with inclusive services and, and remind them that just because they've had a negative experience with a health worker in the past doesn't mean that there aren't positive um, inclusive spaces out there. So, um, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners will know that the rates of mental health concerns in the LGBTI community are heartbreakingly way higher than um, their, their hetero... Uh, sexual or cisgendered counterparts, um, but you know it. It doesn't take a genius to realise that um, mental illness isn't caused by LGBTIQ identity. It is the you know um, associated anxieties and isolation and stresses and um, you know conscious and unconscious discrimination that happens and the fear of non-acceptance. And if we could wave a wand over our community and all of a sudden see those um, those discrepancies vanish. There, I have no doubt that mental health, um, mental ill health rates would be exactly the same in the community as with the rest of the community. So it's really important that um, health spaces and health services are inclusive and openly welcoming because otherwise, um, yeah, we're, we're missing a huge demographic there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so Q, Q, Q Headspace will be a really valuable resource for people who are... Um uh, affected by things that are going on at school and also in um, in society in general. Of course, we can't ignore um, the marriage postal survey, which we'll spe- um, be talking about in the next few minutes. The High Court challenges notwithstanding, the marriage law postal survey is set to dominate televisions and airways for the next few months. For for queer people, for LGBTIQ people, it can feel like our worth and as people and the value of our relationships are up for public debate. How should we be looking out for our friends and families to make sure that they're okay in your role as um, someone who's involved in mental first aid, mm. mental health first aid? I think oh, it's a really challenging one. So yeah. when people would ask me these questions about a month ago, I would respond in a way that where I was thinking about the consequences for the people around me and the people that um, and the LGBTIQ youth that don't have the benefit of a supportive and inclusive um, home or family or school community. But it's really taken me by surprise and it's been really shattering because I've realised it has actually had a profound effect on my own mental health as well. Um, And I think it's just, you know, we're so connected with our, um, you know, LGBTI elders and understanding how hard they have fought for basic rights and equality over the last few um, generations to understand that now, you know, something that is so close to my own mental health and well-being is now literally being debated by people and leaders of the country who it actually won't affect. It's really heartbreaking. Um, And so it's so important that we're really conscious of the effects that our conversations will have on the people around us and particularly young people. So, you know, if I go back to myself when I was in year 11, I remember the Gillard government was in at the time and they were debating same-sex marriage. And I was you know, at a, at a time where I was really unsure and really afraid that I'm, you know, I was internally quite sure that I might be gay, but I was afraid that I wouldn't be accepted. And the, the impact that the conversations of people around me had was, was really huge. And so it's really important that we, we, we're mindful of how we talk about these things um, and that we encourage um, those around us to take care of themselves and to reach out for professional help if it's all getting too overwhelming. That's the most important thing, um, because yeah, it can be. It's a, it's going to be a really challenging time, and I think the the sorts of questions that we've had coming through in our Q Headspace forums has 
you know, highlighted a lot of these struggles. And so last um, last week we had a chat specifically dedicated to self-care and, and advocacy during difficult times. And, you know, the questions coming through were, were really basic stuff like, you know, um, uh, I'm, 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 I'm in a family where... Um, I feel like I'm surrounded by homophobia, I'm, I'm surrounded by no voters, but I know that I'm same-sex attracted. How can I have this conversation with my family? And it's just, it's so important that um, we're really careful about how we frame um, our, our opinions because it, has a, it can have a really significant impact on young people's mental health. Absolutely. So um, if uh, you, you mentioned earlier, Q Headspace is a monthly forum. Uh, if people are interested in um, joining in and um, they believe they'd benefit from Q Headspace, how can they uh, take part and when is it next happening? Yep. So they can log in. Um, so if they go to eheadspace.org.au um, and then they can follow the link to group chats, which has a specific Q Headspace um, forum space. Um, and we encourage young people to log in, but also we've had quite a few parents logging in asking about, you know, they, it's been, yeah, really cool. Parents asking us how we, how they can best support their young people, their kids. Um, and we will have one most likely in the next, in the next week, actually, because we're still trying to lock it in, but we've, yeah, we've, um, really pushed to get a more regular thing going because we know it's going to be a really challenging time for queer youth and we need to provide that support for them. That's right. So, folks, keep your eyes locked on that eHeadspace website. We'll also link that on our webpage, which is 3cr.org.au. You've been listening to 3CR Community Radio and Monday Breakfast with Will and Lucy, and we've been speaking to Charlie Cooper, who is an LGBTQI mental health advocate involved with Headspace and the new initiative Q Headspace. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It was great to chat to you. Thank you. Uh, if anything we've talked to about today has raised any questions uh, or concerns for you, call Headspace on 1-800-650-890 or reach them at headspace.org.au. You can also call Lifeline at 13 11 44. And earlier we mentioned QLife, which is a, um, a helpline and it's also an online service. But if you wanted to co- contact them by phone, phones are manned from 3 p.m. to midnight at 1-800-184-527. This is East Bay Ray from Dead Kennedys. You're listening to Community Radio 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Have an orgasm for Christ. We're now joined by City of Yarra Mayor Amanda Stone. Councillor Stone, thank you for coming on Monday Breakfast. It's a pleasure, Lucy. We wanted to talk with you about the City of Yarra's decision regarding council events on the 26th of January. It's a contentious day for many. Can you tell us, uh, for a bit of background, about the changes the council voted in favour of at last month's meeting? Well, we uh, made a number of decisions that followed on from prolonged and in-depth conversations with our Aboriginal community, and these were all proposals that they had suggested and we adopted. One of those was to uh, acknowledge the date as one that wasn't one of celebration so that we would refer to it by its date only as January the 26th. Another was to move the celebratory events that we scheduled on that day to another date. We don't do much on the 26th of January anyway. We hold a citizenship ceremony and uh, give out our Citizen of the Year awards. So we were would have been moving those. Um, we don't do anything else on that day generally. Uh, and 
Most of all, um, in partnership with the Aboriginal community, we undertook to uh, conduct a, a campaign of information and education about why that date is not experienced as a positive one for the Aboriginal community. And that's the predominant action that came out of our council resolution. Can you share um, with us some of the thoughts that came out of the community as part of the consultation that prompted you to take action? Uh, There were a lot of thoughts, but there are also discussions that we've been having for a long time with both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal members of the community. They were really that um, a national day needs to be one that includes everybody, where everyone can feel proud and happy and celebratory about our nation. January the 26th is a date that's been adopted as Australia Day based on an historical event, the um, claiming of the land, Australia is terra nullius, by another nation. And that simple act has actually led to a whole series of two centuries long Uh, negative impacts on the Aboriginal community still being felt today um, and it's been quite devastating. So it's not a day that uh, the Aboriginal community in Yarra in particular, and that's who we talk to, uh, experiences a positive event. So to, to continue to acknowledge that as a national day of celebration is um, inconsistent with what we've been told and what any empathic, compassionate person listening to these stories would understand. And what what has been the federal government's response to these changes? Um, They seem to find um, a fairly simple action on behalf of our council as fairly threatening to the national identity of the nation and have stated that... um, by not holding a citizenship ceremony on that date, we are politicising uh, Australia Day. Um, and, of course, they've stripped us of our ability to conduct citizenship ceremonies, not just on that date, but on the other five days in the year where we hold them. And uh, I understand that there will be no backing down from that. So um, that's been the reactive response, but it's also been linked with a claim that um, it's un-Australian, I've heard that, and also that um, this is making something political. Uh, you could say that the reaction to the date so far suggests that it's already politicised. I know the council's vote was unanimous, but there was also some opposition from local residents. What would you say to help unite the community over the council's decision? I think the opposition comes from many um, points. One of them is really a lack of understanding of what our Aboriginal community has told us, which is it's a day of sadness and loss and that it really is difficult to say this should be our day of national celebration when you ignore that experience of a whole group of people. So I think think there's a bit of education and understanding. Most people have... Um, empathy or the capacity for empathy and most people have the ability to understand another person's point of view or a group of persons point of view if they have the information and that's what our Aboriginal community wanted us to do which is really inform and educate people that's a slow process it has to happen through conversations respectful conversations 
and conversations that are about exchanges and giving and taking, understanding each other's point of view. But there is a history there that happened. Um, you can't undo the history. We just do have to understand it. There are also a lot of people in the community who support the council's changes. How can they get behind the decision? We're backing up this decision with um, a strategy that is part of which is a social media campaign. We'll be having um, a lot of stories and uh, comments on our social media channels from people who have that experience of what the 26th of January means. So it would be great to have people who support our position joining that discussion, contributing to the social media campaign, posting comments on Facebook and Twitter, uh, joining the Change the Date campaign, um, using the hashtag Change the Date um, to get that shared around, and simply talking to people. Uh, it's really difficult to talk to someone who's angry about something or who doesn't agree. But if we don't actually start to have those conversations, we're not going to get to that point of understanding. If you'd like to show your support for the City of Yarra, you'll be able to find all the information about their social media campaign up on our website, 3cr.org.au. We have been speaking with the Mayor of the City of Yarra, Councillor Stone. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Lucy, very much. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.